Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. It's the end of a hard week. Nothing can be worse than losing a child in the way families in Uvalde, Texas have lost them. That loss is felt profoundly in our state because of what happened in Sandy Hook. Thursday evening, Newtown residents attended a vigil at Trinity Episcopal Church. My first guest lives in Newtown and has written about what it's been like raising two sons in a community that understands this grief. Carol Ann Davis writes, gun violence has a long tail. There will be days when your town, your children, every part of this living you are doing, every corner of your imagination will feel like it belongs only to the tragedy you experienced. Carol Ann Davis joins us now on Zoom. She's a poet and professor at Fairfield University and the author of The Nail in the Tree, Essays on Art, Violence, and Childhood. Carol Ann, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me and for giving this issue attention this morning, Lucy. Thank you, Carol Ann. And just a note for our listeners, uh, Fairfield University is a partner of Connecticut Public. Uh, Carol Ann, you've written about uh, this grief that your community knows uh, so well. You talk about a harrowing ritual every time uh, you see one of these mass shootings. And so I wanted to ask you to describe the last couple of days for you as you absorb yet again a school shooting that's happened, this time in Uvalde. Well, Lucy, this one was a little bit um, unusual for me because I was sort of busy on Tuesday and didn't see the news. Uh, so part of the ritual is that people begin to reach out to me. Uh, so I, I found out about the shooting because there are people who live elsewhere who saw it and thought of me immediately and, and just wanted to make sure I was all right. So part of the harrowing ritual is figuring out why people are asking me if I'm all right <laughs> uh, and then going and, and being pretty sure what I can think what it is and checking the news. So that that is how this ritual began this time, which is a little bit of a shift, I think. It, it, it indicates a level of awareness out in the nation around this issue. Uh, people calling themselves in to the communities that are affected. Um, so I'm going to think of that as a positive. Um, other parts of the ritual are emails from school superintendents and from the principal letting us know the measures that are in place to support us heading back into school and the ritual of thinking, right, I have to send my child back. Um, this probably sounds familiar to people who don't live in an affected community, um, I'd like to also mention that I think this is happening to all of us as a nation. Uh, sometimes I almost think if you don't live in an affected community, somehow your helplessness is more acute, um, although there's no comparing any of it. Hmm. 
You mentioned the the email you, that you receive from the superintendent. You have uh, two sons, and so that kind of correspondence uh, was it unusual this time around uh, when when you heard from the school? I think there was there was a a note you know a note of sobriety about the age of the children. There's um the eerie similarities with Newtown with our with our shooting were were present in the email. It was very brief, appropriately brief. The tone of the email is always that it's, you know, very sad news and the support we always send to our are basically our sister towns. Those are the focuses really of those emails. You talk about how people have reached out to you and then in turn, are you reaching out to others in your community? Yes, I. We, we just kind of gather each other closer. You know, there are hugs in parking lots and, and talk at soccer. And um, I was mentioning, you know, I kept to my routine this week and went to all my regular obligations, so I wasn't at the vigil. But that's actually something I've learned to do, um, to try and say I'm in this community, I'm doing the things that the community needs to have done. And some people have, that means going to the vigil. Some For some, that means running sort of errands for a team or um, going to theater practice. Um, I guess I'd like to emphasize just what, what a vital community we are and how many people are here leaning into living here. Mm-hmm. Let our listeners know how old your children were when the Sandy Hook shooting happened and you know, how it's really shaped your worldview, but also just you know, being a parent and you know, all of the things that we worry about with our children. And you know, this is just adds another layer. Right. My my sons were five and nine on the day of the shooting. They were in kindergarten and fourth grade. They were not at Sandy Hook. They were at an, 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 a neighboring public elementary school. There are four in Newtown. Um, uh, that day has shaped everything about parenting and also exaggerated simply some aspects of parenting, I think, uh, we all are always worried about the dangers our children are in. Um, and I looked back at the poems I had written before the tragedy, and the danger was my sense of children being in danger was present before. Uh, and then this only exaggerated that feeling. Um, one really, really important aspect of my parenting I worked on quite a bit after the shooting was that the fears that I had were not endemic to my my children, that my experience of that day would be different from theirs, and to try not to assume that they were living with the kind of fear I was living with. So I guess to try and preserve the idea that they might they might be able to integrate something I found like not integratable. 
Can you share the kinds of conversations you've had with your children, your your husband, you know, how those conversations have changed uh, nearly a decade later? I know as a parent, I, I struggle to talk about um, what has happened with my six-year-old, uh, but now that my son right. is almost a... Uh, 12, um, you know, there's a, a difference in the approach, but it, it's still hard. Yes, my my book that I wrote focused a lot on on this issue, Lucy. The We had a strange situation for many years after the, the tragedy where our older son had found out on the day I had had to tell him on the way home from picking him up because he had perceived enough strange uh, happenings with the sirens out the window and people being picked up all day long at school. So I had to speak with him on the way home and he just wanted to know exactly what had happened. Um, and then my younger son who hadn't gone to school that day because it was a half day kindergarten situation and he was mo he was afternoon kindergarten, which was obviously canceled. Um, so he had no real sense of anything having happened that day and so um, I had that dissonance between one child knowing and one child not knowing and then guidance followed quite quickly we had all kinds of support in Newtown for how to talk about this with our children and one of the big pieces of advice was to answer the questions that they ask and not the ones they don't with I think the idea that the children will arrive at the questions they need to ask in the ways they need to ask them. So we spent a long time sort of waiting for my younger son to ask questions um, and answered only those. And that was a years long process, about four years until I've written about this. I just decided to kind of tell him one day when we were driving somewhere because I felt like it was becoming like a question for him. It, he was drawing other conclusions about why his older brother had friends who had lost siblings around his age. He was starting to see that that was like there were more than there should be of those. And he was starting to, I think, have nightmares about that. So I finally just told him. How are they doing today, Carolyn? I think they're doing well. Uh, uh, when my son's class graduated last year, uh, my son, my older son graduated high school um, with classmates who, who lost siblings and I remember being somewhere with some parents and being like, they made this milestone. They got here. They graduated. Like, yay for them. Yay for us. You know, we, they, they're doing some, everything they do that happens in a kind of a, a normal kind of a timeline kind of a way, I think, is, is evidence of their resiliency and, you know, the commitment their parents have made to... Um, to trying to trying to live in the moment of this, um, so they're off at college. They're they're coming home now. My my son is actually working working out west this summer at a state park, um, so he's already off doing that. 
And um, my younger son, the um, part of why we moved to Newtown was so that my younger son could have like a K through 12 experience all in one place because my my older son had had to move a lot uh, to different magnet schools where we had lived in Charleston, South Carolina. So my old, my younger son has had more, um, in some ways, a more consistent schooling experience. And so he's, you know, he's headed into the summer between his freshman and his sophomore year. And my, my biggest hope is that it'll be kind of a regular summer for him. Right. You wrote a, a recent uh, piece for the Atlantic, uh, where you are, you write about what you wish you could, um, what you understand that the people of Uvalde, Texas, will be feeling, but you may not have the heart to tell them. Can you describe that for our listeners? Well, I just the first thing um, is just how long it at the part that you read at the beginning of the segment, the idea of the long tail of gun violence. And this has happened to me a couple of times. I had students who lived in Pittsburgh on the occasion of that shooting, former students, a married couple who'd met in one of my classes was living there. And um, also in Charleston, South Carolina, I'm very close to uh, the whole community of poets there because I taught for 10 years. And when the shooting happened at Mother Emanuel, I remember uh, my friend was texting me because there was a lot of coming together in Charleston. They actually finally got the Confederate flag taken down from the state house, which had been something they needed to do for many years. And I had to break it to her that the unity was going to break. Well, not that the unity breaks, but that no matter how unified the community was, they this was going to be with them for years and years and years. And so that was my first thought for Uvalde is like, this is the first day of years and years and years of pain and, you know, growth that you never thought you could do, uh, stretching that you're going to have to do. But then the thing that I really couldn't say was that, that they would be the last ones or that their suffering would be for something because, you know, that is the part that we, we know for sure there'll be another one. Mm. Uh, and that's really hard. And after I wrote that, I went, I went off to the grocery store and I ran into another mom and she said the words to me, I wish we could tell them they would be the last ones. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of frustration about you know, where we are as a country, that inaction that um, so many see in Washington, Carol Ann. What did yes. you want to leave our listeners with uh, today as they, they head into this, um, this weekend? Well, I think that I would like people to understand like how vital we all are to our own society. Um, as difficult as this week has been, you know, the beauty of living here, the beauty of living is is really present all the time. And that we really do have the opportunity from this moment to do something, to do large and small actions that will improve the lives of our children. And that we we will be worthy of our children if we if we can please uh continue to lean in to the pain that we're feeling and let it change us in ways that will lead lead us somewhere 
important together. You've been hearing Carolyn Davis here on Where We Live. She's a Newtown resident, a poet, and professor at Fairfield University, and the author of The Nail on the Tree, Essays on Art, Violence, and Childhood. Carolyn, thank you for coming on our show today. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be back after a short break. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. For the rest of the hour, we're pivoting to a topic that gets a lot of attention in the spring, and that's testing in schools. Connecticut public school students in grades 3 through 11 have wrapped up annual state tests to measure performance in reading, language arts, math, and science. Standardized testing is a mandate from the U.S. Department of Education, but what does the data tell us about how students are learning and what disparities exist? Joining us now on Zoom is Akila Aleen, Associate Professor of K-12 through Education at Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. Akila, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Before we get into testing, uh, because of your expertise, the fact that you've got a lot of educator colleagues, is there anything you wanted to share about the last few days since uh, the school shooting in Uvalde? Yeah, I actually would really like to echo Carol Ann's comments from the previous segment. Um, I'm sick and I'm heartbroken for the families that have lost their children and their loved ones in Uvalde, Texas. Um, You know, it's incredibly devastating. And I just have to say that there's no amount of thoughts and prayers that can bring back our children who were lost in the the Texas mass shooting. And so um, it's, it's really important for folks to understand that, you know, we're grieving another school shooting caused by easy access to guns. And we need to recognize that this is a failure to protect our children, Um, as well as a failure to protect Black and brown communities, Black men and women who recently were shot and killed in grocery stores and churches in the past couple of years. You know, this is a uniquely American issue. And, um, you know, Lucy, our CEO made a statement a couple days ago saying that this is something that we have 
every power to prevent, right? We have the tools, we have the resources, we can create the policies, but we, unfortunately, we simply have not reached um, the morality to have a moral spine to confront this issue. And so, you know, and I completely agree with, with what he said. And so the fact of the matter is, children are absolutely defenseless in this world right now. And congressional supporters of guns should really be ashamed of the heightened sense of fear and danger that plagues our communities after each and every one of these violent acts. And, um, you know, it's it's unfortunate that it's so predictable, these horrific tra- tragedies nowadays. And we cannot continue to be complacent with this as a society. We need to protect the lives of innocent children. Thank you, Akila, for sharing that uh, with us. Um, we brought you onto the show to talk about uh, standardized testing. Um, obviously, there were changes, especially during the pandemic. But you know, I'm wondering if we could begin by talking about you know the origins of these mandated tests. You know, I'm a child of the '80s, and I remember taking them when I was in elementary school. They were I was in I grew up in Pennsylvania, but I remember the tests were the Iowa tests. So, what can you tell us about the origins? Yeah, so there's a long history regarding standardized testing in American history. I'll start off, you know, way back when, I would say prior to the 1860s, um, most people know that people of color were prohibited from accessing education and even punishable by death if they were caught learning to read or write, right? And so we fast forward to early and mid-1900s when uh, Black and brown children were eventually allowed to receive an education What we saw in schools was that black and white students were segregated by their academic ability. And so we have a lot of social science research now, a lot of well-documented reports showing that there were various ways in which scientists would subject black students disproportionately to a series of experimental studies um, that often projected ideologies that were um, racist and based on systemic issues with how we see education and academic achievement. And so um, I would say around the time that you were in schools, uh, the role of standardized testing shifted, uh, probably starting in the 1970s. And uh, then the then US Commissioner of Education had created what's called the uh, first National Assessment of Education Progress. And so um, that was created around 1969. that has set the precedence for the modern era of standardized testing, right? And so um, with the NEAP, we've shifted away from measuring intelligence and you know, ideologies around biological racism and self, self-hatred by race and ethnicity to now measuring academic performance based on a set of standards. So uh, where we are now is that we are, uh, we've recently moved past what most people know as the NCLB, No Child Left Behind Act, which was a federal law that was passed in 2001. And the intention of that law was to really close the achievement gap through different accountability measures and providing more flexibility to states around school choice, just to make sure that no child is left behind. Now, Uh, The state accountability model for NCLB has received a lot of criticism and, you know, hence the reason why we now have a new model, which I'll talk about in a second. But NCLB was based on graduation rates, test scores, and states were required to measure school performance through uh, various metrics. But the, the most popular one that most people know about is called the Adequate Yearly Progress or AYP. 
An AYP refers to the total number of students who achieved the score of proficient or above the state testing proficiency level. So uh, proficient would be considered like a grade of C on, on an A to F grading scale. And schools were required to meet annual benchmarks according to what the federal government had set in math and reading. So what happened was when schools would miss their targets and their requirements, you know, they weren't able to get certain types of funding and they were met with sanctions outlined by NCLB. And some of those sanctions raised from, you know, uh, school choice vouchers to disproportionately served communities, allowing students who were not performing well to be transported to schools outside of their school districts that were uh, better schools, more high quality resources. And um, other types of sanctions were like mandatory targeted tutoring and, and supports like that. So Akila, I wanted to ask, um, you know, in Connecticut, when we think about standardized, te- standardized testing in our schools, you know, when we think about how they were used to grade schools and, you know, looking at a single point in time, I believe in Connecticut, they're starting to shift that and looking at factoring in growth over time. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about that approach. Yeah, absolutely. So Uh, The system that Connecticut operates under right now, I would say, seems like a pretty balanced assessment system. It includes uh, what's called summative assessments, um, where, you know, just essentially measuring the summation of what students are learning across the school year. And then within those assessment periods, you have optional interim or in-between assessments. And this is a discretionary type of assessments where Teachers are allowed to check on student progress throughout the year and give them specific uh, changes in their instruction or curriculum to make sure that they are meeting the challenges of uh, the college and career ready standards. So I would say, you know, Connecticut is is definitely on the right track when it comes to thinking about changing these systems so that they're more balanced. Um, You have other states like uh, Delaware is also using a similar system. Uh, but the Connecticut Smarter Balance System is, you know, a, a good one. And I think that hopefully at some point all states can get on uh, like sort of like a baseline model and follow this, the same type of assessment structure. Now, I mentioned the pandemic, and so I'm wondering when we think about how these assessments, uh, how schools are approaching them, because we know, it, you know it's something that the education uh, department under Education Secretary Dr. Dr. Miguel Cardona, you know, it's still a requirement. And I'm just wondering in terms of when the we were talking about sanctions earlier from NCLB, you know, how that has even changed. Yeah. So back in 2020, um, pretty much all states received the opportunity to waive their assessments and accountability systems. So what that means is that schools weren't necessarily required to report on how their students were doing. Um, and, you know, on one end, I think parents and teachers and community members were very relieved by that because, you know, the stress, stressors of the health aspect of the pandemic was sort of conflicting with students being able to get what they needed in the classrooms. Um, however, there's been a lot of backlash concerning the decision to not only waive test scores uh, in our assessments in 2020, but many schools took advantage of the opportunity to also waive in 2021. So what we're seeing now is that we essentially have very little data um, since most schools, most states weren't actively identifying schools where students needed additional supports in the past two years 
we don't really have very much data on, you know, which students have fallen through this, the cracks and, you know, that's coupled with chronic absenteeism and we've lost a lot of students in our schools and, and we're trying to figure out how to measure that now. Right. And so when we think about um, how these uh, assessments can be used in a way to measure, as you mentioned, learning loss, uh, but also thinking about how these tests were used, even grade schools or, you know, um, even, um, you know, some states thinking about ways uh, to uh, measure uh, teacher performance. And so, you know, there's a lot to to unpack here, uh, Akila. you know, so from the center, from your perspective, you know, what is the best approach? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think generally, Most people are still figuring it out, but I think from, um, you know, CAP's perspective and my personal perspective, um, I guess there's two two parts to my answer here. Uh, One thing that our team generally um, has a strong take on is is how we are defining learning loss. And so we're very careful in how we use that term. Conceptually, we view... um, we view what's been happening as interrupted learning or unfinished learning as opposed to learning that has been lost. Um, Essentially, we don't necessarily believe that learning can ever be lost, but that we can always, students can always gain what they need to gain um, as as long as it's provided to them and they are offered equitable opportunities, materials, and high quality instruction. So I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that that is a term that uh, we're really trying to sort of center a conversation around uh, and particularly being careful of how um, when we do say learning loss, like who does that term or that phrase get attached to across demographics? Um, but to, to answer the second part of your question, I would say that really what we'd like to see, we do a lot of work around something called community-centered conversations, um, where we go into communities and we speak with students, teachers, um, state elected officials, state education agencies, and we find out from them what is going on at the ground level. Um, So one thing we really are pushing for is for uh, teachers and elected officials to really be asking questions about how the academic, the current state of academia um, and the academic uh, curriculum in schools is related to workforce development, right? And we also want to see our teachers working side by side with the people who create these tests, the psychometricians who actually create the tests. These are experts who know what to ask on the test, um, but we do know that there can be implicit biases in who's creating the test. So working with communities and, and having a community-centered approach to test design is super important to us because then you get to hear about uh, the lived experiences of those taking the test and you can really adjust the small things like sentence structure to make sure that it's equitable and, and students can um, respond according to their worldview uh, as well. You're hearing Akila Aline here on Where We Live. She's from the Center for American Progress as we talk about uh, required standardized testing, uh, their role um, in how schools are measured, how students are, whether they're considered that students are learning to a particular standard. And I'm wondering, you know, we're also seeing states approach uh, uh, differently, uh, Akila, when it relates to school funding. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, when it comes to school funding, um, you know, that's also a very touchy subject. Uh, Typically, what happens is under ESSA law, which is the Every Student Succeeds Act, um, there's a certain percentage of funding that is allocated to states to uh, perform their assessments. These are called state assessment grants. 
And, um, you know, what happens is when schools aren't necessarily doing well, those funds don't get taken away, but they are very much restricted into how they can be used. And they can only go to certain aspects of the assessments process. And so there's a lot of frustration um, nationally concerning um, needing there needing to be more flexibility about how the funds can be used um, and also like not punishing and, and penalizing students who are underperforming um, by taking money away and taking resources away from the supports and services that they need. And so uh, one of the things that we would really like to see um, in the work that I'm doing with my team is states taking advantage of something called a demonstration authority where they can apply for grants to do innovative assessment models, create some new models and create new evaluation systems and um, try some new ways of testing and reporting the results of these testings um, that can be adopted in the future as a permanent model in their states. How do you think parents should approach these standardized uh, tests? I mean, we get reminders when uh, the testing will occur and uh, teachers and principals will say, make sure your, your child has a good breakfast that morning. <laughs> and I'm just wondering in terms of, you know, the perspective that you bring, you know, you know how parents should weigh uh, these tests um, and the role in their child's education as well as, you know, in the school that they're attending. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that there we have some parents who are very, very involved and super engaged in what's going on in their schools. But then you have parents who work two, three, four or five jobs, you know, and they can't afford to necessarily take time at the end of the day when they have to provide a meal for their children and, and prepare for the next morning. And so we parents are telling us in our community conversations is that they would really like to see um, these test results more accessible, whether it be on the school website one of the things that we we noticed when we were looking for research on this is that a lot of the links are inactive on state websites. So there'll be a link to test results or PDFs and you click it and it'll be an error message, right? And so that defeats the purpose of accessibility. And so uh, our, our parents and even teachers, they want school systems to collect and distribute data that are both useful and purposeful in their daily teaching and learning for their students and their children. Um, but they also would like to see uh, spaces created to have conversations about what they want to know about how their kids are doing and how it will serve their children and their children's futures and um, their households. And so, you know, this is why we continue to push for the community centered approach. Um, we also know that many folks feel that emphasizing test data is, is important. However, how we measure and what indicators we use in testing is equally, if not more important um, to, to capturing the lived experiences of today's reality. So uh, I would say at the end of the day, state accountability systems, um, you know, could be modernized and revised. They don't necessarily provide all the all the necessary information that caregivers and parents want to see and need to see in order to guide their daily actions. So we need to be more transparent about what's available for for parents to make decisions in their children's education. That's an important point. Data is important about when we think about making it accessible, but also even uh, making sure that that people are, are reading the data correctly. So maybe looking at point in time versus growth uh, and how districts can be improving over time versus fixating on that one year, Akila. Correct. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And are teachers yeah. still teaching to the test? What are you finding? 
You know, it's, uh, I'll be honest, Lucy, it's really difficult. We're having a hard time, um, I think, with everything that's been going on with changes in, you know, students are coming back from this hybrid model or remote model to in-person. Um, it's very difficult for teachers to keep up with, with what's actually on the test and having the resources to, to prepare their students. We also know that teachers are uh, leaving the classrooms at higher rates than ever before. There's been a lot of uh, news on te- national teacher shortage and teachers are experiencing a lot of strains and um, you know mental health issues and concerns with, with their own work and how adequate they feel to be good teachers. And so um, hopefully we'll be able to get some more information on that in this upcoming school year, the fall of 2022, as schools are required to re- Collect, start recollecting their data in the way that they were doing prior to the pandemic. So we hope to have some more information on that soon. What do you want to leave uh, our listeners with in terms of when they think about their individual school districts and even the way that, that Connecticut um, approaches standardized testing, Akila? Yeah, I would really, really love um, for parents and educators and just community members in general to feel empowered to speak to your elected officials, go to town hall meetings, you know, call into to the radio and 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 ask questions. Um, I'm very passionate about civics educate education being a part of testing, and um, I really think that it's important for current events that are widely impacting our children and our families to be a part of these new models of assessments. Um, they're widely left out. They've been historically left out, and but the reality is, you know, the very issues that we're facing and the topics and things that we're talking about. Um, that are directly impacting our students are are not being, you know, asked about or measured. Um, and I also would like for parents to really push for mental health assessments to be a part of um, these standardized tests, pre-assessment and post-assessments to assess how their children are feeling before they take the tests and after the tests, so we can really um, get a, a good measure of whether or not these tests are effective. That's an interesting point, thinking about the mental health assessments as we hear about this crisis that uh, children are uh, facing, uh, unfortunately. Uh, Keila, b- before we end, when we think about um, standardized tests, uh, you know, again, different states have uh, different tests. Uh, do you anticipate that there'll be some more standardization, uh, more universality uh, across uh, states? Or, and would that be maybe not a good thing when we think about, you know, structural problems and student learning when we think about from one community to the next? Yeah, that is a great, great question, Lucy. And, um, you know, I think my perspective on it is that uh, we don't need to be standardizing tests for the sake of um, rushing to get something in in place, right? I think that we really need to take the time, uh, but not too much time, obviously, to figure out what exactly makes the most sense on what we should be capturing across states um, and, and the best way to do that is really to get into communities and, and talking to community members. I think there's a good there's a good balance. It's important for us to have at least a baseline measure of how students are doing um, so that we can inform federal level policies to make sure that all of our students have access to a high quality education, no matter where they what their background is or uh, what uh, socioeconomic status that they come from. So, um, you know, to be to be determined. Well, that's a good place uh, to end. Akila Aline, thank you so much uh, for the context that you have provided us. Associate Director of K-12 through Education at Center for American Progress in D.C. Thanks for your time today. Thanks, Lucy. Take care.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, uh, more colleges and universities have changed their approach to entrance exams for admission. Many are no longer requiring the SAT or ACT. What's your take? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. The pandemic led many universities and colleges to drop the requirement that prospective students must submit SAT or ACT scores to be considered for admission, including the University of Connecticut. In 2020, UConn said at the time it would be a three-year trial made after it had studied the issue, saying to the Connecticut Mirror, high-scoring students tend to be successful, but that doesn't mean those who struggle on the test won't also do well in college. So will colleges and universities make this permanent? The College Board has worked to rework the test and plans to roll out a digital SAT in 2024. Joining us now on Zoom is Scott Jashik, editor and founder of Inside Higher Ed. Scott, welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677. And so we heard a little bit about the history of standardized testing in public schools. So um, I wanted to actually start with when we think about why colleges dropped the requirement uh, back in 2020 with the pandemic, and now more and more are deciding you know, maybe we'll make this uh, voluntary. So what are, what are you hearing in terms of what this looks like in higher ed now? I mean, what we're hearing is just what you said. More are making it voluntary, and some, including the whole University of California system and the California State University system, are going test blind. That means you can't even submit an SAT or ACT score if you want to. Um, uh, What UConn is doing is test optional, where you have the option to submit the SAT score. And so why are they making the switch? Well, I mean, this movement existed before the pandemic uh, from people who said, look, there is a correlation of race on SAT scores. Asian students, Asian American students score the best by far. Black black scores are worse. Um, And they said it just wasn't uh, valuable enough, truly, in the admissions process. Uh, You know, the SAT and ACT, they're... they're, uh, you know, reason for existing, frankly, is largely to uh, provide a measure of what is a high school like. But many high school counselors know their high schools. Most students go to high school, go to college near where they live. Um, it's not that hard to to find out about high schools. Uh, when we uh, think about again, you know, the 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 fact that the College Board is, has been reworking uh, the the SAT, and there's now this digital uh, version that they're working on rolling out. I mean, what's your take? What are you hearing from uh, people across the board on uh, this measure, uh, given the fact that you know so many universities and colleges are even dropping the requirement? I mean, they say that these are good changes and they're happy to see them, but I don't see these changes stopping the interest in going SAT optional or SAT blind. 
Uh, there's a quote um, from uh, the National Center for Fair and Open Testing, also known as Fair Test. Uh, the uh, head of that organization, Robert uh, Schaefer, uh, saying uh, to the New Yorker, I believed that um, you know retooling the SAT is quote largely rearranging deck chairs or putting lipstick on a pig. Uh, Robert Schaefer said, in my experience, it never made the test a better or fairer predictor, which is what it's supposed to do. Can you respond to that? I mean, uh, you know, that is pr precisely what you are hearing, perhaps not with as much rhetoric uh, as, as as Bob Schaefer does uh, from colleges. Colleges are not reversing themselves. Now, there is there are a few exceptions. MIT reversed itself and will require the SAT or ACT. But MIT is a very different institution from those that most students attend. Uh, so I'm not sure there does not seem to be much interest in following MIT there. Mm. Again, you're hearing Scott Jashik here on Where We Live as we talk about how uh, many colleges and universities are making the SAT and ACT once a requirement and now it's voluntary. How is this playing out in terms of, you know, you know, so many uh, parents uh, still spend a lot of uh, time and money on uh, uh, prep uh, programs uh, for those who are still taking the test and, you know, how this plays out for even scholarships for some students who decide they're going to take it and submit it uh, on their own. Yes. I mean, look, uh, any student can take the SAT now because the pandemic, well, I don't want to say is over, but is more under control uh, than it was uh, two years ago. But, um, w you know, to submit scores for the big scholarships, uh, to, to be confident of your scores, uh, wealthy students are spending thousands, tens of thousands of dollars on coaching for the test. And that is, uh, to many people, inherently unfair to low-income students who can't spend uh, that kind of money on, on test prep. Uh, it's, th th that's really uh, a key part of the, uh, of the equity argument. Right. Uh, well, when you talk about money, you know, how much has the College Board lost <laughs> over the last oh, couple of years? A lot. I mean, there, there have been layoffs at the College Board and at the ACT. Uh, this has been uh, very damaging to them. I mean, uh, I think it's 700,000 fewer students took the SAT last year. That's a lot of money. Again, you can join our conversation. Uh, what's your take uh, with this uh, switch? Uh, pretty dramatic when we think about 80%, uh, I believe, of colleges and universities not requiring the SAT or ACT in the fall of 2022. Our number, 888-720-9677. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, what about some other um, exams that have been requirements, like the, L the LSAT and the GRE? How are graduate schools and law schools approaching these exams? Well, the LSAT is right now, uh, you know, facing potential decision by the American Bar Association not to require a test to get in to college. But they, but already uh, with the pandemic, uh, law schools were looking at going test optional, or in that case, letting students take the GRE instead of the LSAT. Um, uh, the GRE has lost a lot of colleges and it's mo mostly decided on a department by department level for um for graduate programs uh but they have lost a lot of places that are no longer looking at or looking only optionally at 
uh, their test scores. I would say the one group that is perhaps um, less likely to drop the test completely, uh, maybe the medical schools uh, with, the, with the MCAT. Oh, that's interesting. Tell us more about that. Well, look, I, I mean, it, with medical school, there is more of a, a traditional basis for saying, look, if you're going to do well in medical school, you must know certain parts of biology, of chemistry, et cetera. Um, it's not like that with the LSAT or the GRE. Uh, there's no, uh, the, the LSAT does not test knowledge of laws. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a general test of intelligence. So if colleges uh, at one point were weighing the SAT and ACT scores pretty heavily, but now uh, not a requirement, what will take the place of that when colleges and universities are thinking about students who they should admit and have a, you know, have a you know, bright future ahead of them? Sure. I mean, first of all, grades in college preparatory courses. That is by far the most important thing. But beyond that, student activities, uh, awards, essays at some colleges. So there is still a range of things that, uh, that colleges can require. Many have started uh, for essays requiring it to be an essay on which the student has received a grade and they ask them to submit the graded essay, uh, which uh, prevents students from uh, cheating basically by submitting a, an essay that somebody else has looked at. Again, you've been hearing Scott Jashik here on Where We Live. He's editor and founder of Inside Higher Ed. Scott, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back next week. Enjoy your weekend. Mm-hmm.